welcome to the Fundraising Leadership Podcast, where we engage in lively and thoughtful conversations about personal development and leadership for professionals in the nonprofit world. I'm Margaret Katz-Can, and I'm here today with my partner, Janice Cunning. Hi, Margaret. And today, um, I would like to introduce our guest. Um, Our guest today is Britt Frank, who comes from... uh, a background of therapy and social work, and um, she is a clinician, an educator, and a trauma specialist. Uh, She is the author of the book, The Science of Stuck, which we will be talking about more today. She is a somatic experiencing practitioner and level three trained in the internal family systems therapeutic model. And she owns a private therapeutic practice. And we are very excited to have her here talking about the topic of stuck. Welcome, Britt. Hi, thank you so much. For, I need to rewrite my bio. That's just too wordy, but I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's always so hard to listen bio. to somebody read your bio, isn't it? It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. I talk about how the brain brains. That's all my bio needs to say. <laughs> you Say that again. You talk about? How the brain brains. How the brain brains. That sounds like a great segue. How does the brain brain? (laughs) Not very well for people these days. It's really tricky. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book, and it's the science of stuck and not the trauma of stuck, because not everybody identifies as having a mental health challenge or having trauma, but I know no human under the sun who does not know what it's like to be stuck with something at some point. And it's not because of laziness or lack of motivation or any of those things we, you know, hit ourselves with. There's science behind our stuckness. And again, when you know how the brain brains, life tends to work a little bit better. It's like learning how to drive a car. If I didn't know how to drive, I would think a car with no gas is just broken. It's like, the car's not broken. Car's fine. I just, I must be a bad driver. There's nothing wrong with me or the car. A car with no gas needs gas. Our are the same. Hmm. That's yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I was really struck by, you know, it, I, when I was reading about you, like you have a lot of lived experience, obviously, you, you work with your clients, like, what was it about this topic that you felt like this is the moment, this is what people need to read? So I wish I was that altruistic that I wrote the book based on what I thought the need was. But uh, the fact that that's beneficial to a current need is great. But I wrote this book because going through my own personal challenges, um, being a business owner, working in the corporate world, being in the therapy world, it was almost appalling to me how simple, not easy, life's not easy, but how simple some of the neuroscience-based tools were. It was, I spent how many years and how much money on grad school and therapy and these very dense academic things. Why can't we just distill this and make this just, this is a human thing, not a mental illness thing or a those people thing. And so I really love taking really smart people's body of work and turning it into cartoons and easy to digest sound bites because I think that's fun and useful. And then the fact that it's useful to everyone else who reads it is a bonus, but not the antecedent. It's sort of an, a cool benefit of me doing what I love, which is geeking out about the brain and how we do our human things and understanding what's behind our choices. 
Yeah. I, I would love just to double click a little bit on what you mean when you talk about stuckness. I mean, I'm hearing, you know, if we have a car that has no gas and we might be stuck thinking that we're broken or we can't drive or the car's broken, then we can't actually see what's going on. And I'm imagining that when you think about stuck, it's that and more. Yeah, there's a spectrum of stuckness. So one version that I think everyone can relate to is why am I not doing the thing I know I'm supposed to do to make my life better? For for you, it might be making the call, sending the email that you've been, not you personally, but like sending the email. Well, you've and been, me personally, but yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's not just I have an addiction or I have some really huge challenge, but everyone knows what it's like to know what they're supposed to be doing to make their lives better or their businesses better and then not doing it. And so the researchers call this the intention action gap, meaning I know what's supposed to happen, I'm doing the exact opposite and there's five miles of empty space between how I'm doing it and what I want to be doing. And the explanation that most people land on is I must be lazy. I just must struggle with motivation. It's just in my DNA. It's just who I am. And that's not true. Again, it's not about justifying behavior. It's about the explanation that there's something wrong with you is not accurate. So here's what's actually happening in your body, in your brain, so that not so you can justify it, but so that you can intervene upon it and do what you want to do to the degree that you have access and relative safety. The situations of genocide and war and oppression, that's not stuckness. That's a whole nother ballgame. And that is not my work. That's not my body of work. All of this information assumes relative safety, relative access to basic resources. In other words, there's no logical reason why you're not doing what you want to be doing. And it's not because you're lazy. So what's 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 the answer? And the neuroscience gives us a lot of that information and a lot of tools, practical tools that you don't need advanced training to. I was so I was angry when I learned some of them because they're mm -hmm. so easy. Yeah, well, that's I mean, it. I like what you're saying, like, I, and I bet a lot of people are listening right now and they've said that, right? Like, oh, I should be going to the gym, but I'm too lazy or, you know, I'm like they're behind in their work. I mean, I see, I will say as a coach, I see a lot of people, you probably feel the same, Margaret, like people feel so much passion about work, working in the nonprofit space that a lot of times it's more of those personal things that people struggle, you know, like going out with friends, like being able to move your body, exercise, like go for a walk even. So if you've, if, if somebody's listening and they're like, oh, I've said that about myself and I'm lazy, what is it, Britt, that you want to reframe that to? Like, what should we be telling ourselves in those moments? Yeah. And the lazy thing is drives me bananas and not because I'm saying you should just you know, just don't do, just don't do it. You're not lazy. There's nothing wrong. It's again, the car has run out of gas. So positive affirmations, positive thinking doesn't get a car with no gas moving and yelling at ourselves and letting our minds tell us all of these stories about why we can't do the thing or why we need to stop or whatever the thing is. And I know burnout is a big deal in every sector, including the nonprofit world. And again, what we've learned to call an internal problem is often an external environmental factor. So rather than asking what's wrong with me, a better question is, what are my choices? Given everything that's going on, given my values, my abilities, my capacities, 
what are my choices? And am I in reactive mode or responsive mode? Because to live a life by design and not defaulting to just reactivity, we want to be making choices, not just reacting to the things happening around us. And that's what this body work does, which is cool. Yeah, I'm sort of just thinking about how strongly our culture, many of our families, you know, really, um, really set that up, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a religious construct or an Ivy League construct, you know, it doesn't matter like what, you know, what the basis, but this, you know, work is good, you know, idol is bad. Which isn't a biological reality. Idol becomes bad when you're not in a choice place where I want to be doing things and I'm just bored and I don't feel like doing anything. But what we learn to say, you know, idols hands are the devil's handy or whatever that quote is. Well, your nervous system is not designed to be in high function, high octane, high productivity as a steady state. We want to be able to shift between, again, like a car, the gas pedal and the brake pedal. A car with no gas pedal isn't going anywhere, but a car with no brake pedal is not going to work for very long and people will get hurt. And so resting, what we call idleness, isn't a problem. It's, are you doing it from like Sunday morning? I will be on my couch doing a whole lot of nothing with my dog and my husband. And I'll be fine with that. If I was laying on my couch right now, mid afternoon, that would be a problem. So Mm -hmm. being idle, isn't the problem. It's what's the context. And is this a choice or do you feel like you're being puppeteered by something outside of you? Right. Yeah. I'm, I must say I'm, I'm a very good relaxer, idler. But, you know, I think I feel very lucky because my my mom was like a real role model. Like when I think of my mom, like when I was younger, she was usually like on the couch with her feet tucked up. She always had her feet like tucked up beside her reading a book. Like that's my sort of thought of my mom when I think about my mom kind of at her happiest. So that was good role modeling (laughs) for me. Um, But I'm curious, Britt, like, so if somebody's like, again, they're sort of thinking like, you know, I want to do something for myself, but I'm not doing it. Um, How do you how do you help them get to choice? Right? Because I think some people feel not at choice. And especially like they, they feel so overwhelmed by their work that they literally have like written this script that I don't have a choice because there's just there's there's like, you know, four million things that I have to do at work. So how would I take time? So how do you how would you help them to reframe that? Well, first we want to take an honest, this is where I wish the therapy world and the business world would join forces. And it's why I've largely taken my work out of the therapy arena, because this is just good. Again, this is good humaning 101. A business that doesn't take inventory will very quickly go bankrupt. And so if you're working in a really busy nonprofit job, first we have to take an inventory. If what you want to do is learn how to ice skate, you don't have the time in your schedule. If you've got four kids and a really busy business and a thousand things on your plate. If those are what you value, you don't have time to learn to be a championship ice skater. And so that either needs to be okay, or we need to reconfigure. So we need to start with what are your values? What do you want to be about? And given the demands on you, what's a realistic expectation? I have clients who they work 20 hours a day and then ask me why they're too lazy to go to the gym. It's like your entire gas tank has been guzzled by the demands of your job. So rather than just throwing up your hands and saying, there's nothing I can do, what's the smallest thing you can do? You might not have the bandwidth to go for a walk around the block, but can you lean over like 
a, a chair in your house and stretch at the end of the day to help your system shift. Go again. I keep, I'm not a big car person, but my entire career has turned into one big car. And now I should be sponsored by a car company. <laughs> but like, if you drive a stick shift, anyone who's ever driven a stick knows you can't just go from fifth gear to first gear. You'll break the car. We have to shift down if we want to relax. But people who are in fifth gear give themselves first gear expectations, mm. aka I'm going 90 miles an hour this week. I have a thousand things to do. I'm working 20 hours a day. Why can't I just watch a show and relax? That's a first gear expectation or a first gear ask for a fifth gear brain state. When we talk about the Sunday scaries, which I'm sure you hear about in spades, Sunday, we've finally gotten down to first gear. We finally figured out how to shift down. And then Monday morning comes with fifth gear demands. And so again, rather than going all or nothing or trying to get rid of one or the other, we want to be able to shift. And there are a lot of tools that help our brains and our bodies do that. None of which require positive thinking or motivation. Hmm. And Margaret, you actually drive a stick shift car. I did. I just, I just <laughs> so it. you know it this may, well. It may be my last stick shift that I ever <laughs> that I ever get to own. You can't. It's very hard to buy a buy another one at this point in time. Yeah, I'm just sort of thinking about you know just again these conversations and they're so common, right? They're so common. I think for us as coaches and therapists and you know at the water cooler, but but just this. It's it doesn't like how people lose track of their values, you know, that that the work and, you know, being at every soccer match for a kid. Or, well, that might be a value, actually. But the, you know, the work and the it somehow takes over and it makes people, I think, you know, well, if you ask them, do you value, you know, your body your exercise? They might even say yes, but they still like they can't make the value rise up to a place where it has any chance against the obligations. And so, yeah, I'm just curious, maybe there's science or, you know, how, how do you reconcile that? One is coming to, especially if, and I have a, you know, I have a social work background, so I have a great compassion for the people who are in the nonprofit sector and how great the need is, but I burnt myself out and had, I won't call it a spiritual awakening. I'll call it what it was, a epic nervous breakdown because I did not have a grasp on my limitations that I can't save the world. I can do my good work in the very tiny minuscule sliver of existence that I occupy, but I can't do any good on behalf of anybody if I'm not, my tank's not full first. And when I worked in the social work, it was, I took every call. I took every emergency. I took every shift. I showed up for every crisis and that's not sustainable. The human brain is not wired to be able to ingest every single piece of information and to be able to carry empathy for every single situation at the same time. And so often we get caught up in these work cycles because we think I can fix it. I can solve it. I, if I work hard enough, I can impact it. And it's a tough line to toe between acknowledging what I can do in my system on behalf of the world and grieving the limitations of not just me, but th the need is too big for the resources. So we have to do what we can and know that we can't do it all. And that's a hard one. I didn't like that. I fought that until it almost killed me. Yeah. yeah. I think that's probably resonating with a lot of people listening. <laughs> You know, because it, it and it, I think it, it's it, it's feeling more and more high stakes, you know, like um, economic problems, you know, like the I was just 
watching something and they were talking about like how many Canadians, you know, are accessing a charity, right? Like whether it's like around housing or a food bank or, you know, and that's like, it's going up and up and up. And many of those people are children. And so, yeah, it's, it's like, feels, it feels like an emergency, like 24 seven. I think a lot of times when you work in a charity, so I'm, I really like that idea of like the fifth gear to fourth gear. Like, I think that's, you know, that really resonated with me, right? Like you're making yourself feel worse if you're trying to go from fifth gear to first gear. And so maybe we could talk about like, what would be some like a kind of practical example? Like what's a fifth to fourth gear example that you or a story you might be able to tell us? I mean, I can give you a big overarching one, but no one will like it. So I'll go more tactical. So a fifth to fourth gear shift might be at the end of your workday. You have to change your clothes to help your brain get out of I'm in work mode, especially with the hybrid and the shift to working remote. Our brains don't move as again, we're not automatics, we're manual. So Give yourself a minute and a half between I've closed my computer and now I'm parenting the kids and now I'm having a conversation with my partner, changing your clothes, having different music that you listen to on your way home. I go as far as I have different perfumes that I wear when I'm in different contexts because the language of shifting your brain is not the thinking part of our brain. It's the sensory part of our brain. So I've primed my brain that when I smell this particular smell, I know I'm in go mode. That's when I need to do something really fifth gearish. And then I have another one that I use when I'm writing and that's, I need to be more flowy and Zen and like spacious. And those types of things seem so silly, but they, they, they work. If we're talking about, we're not going from fifth to first, we're going from fifth to fourth. And then fourth to third might be another decision that involves my senses. First, I change my clothes. Then after I change my clothes, I take 30 seconds to drink some water or to use the restroom. How many of us have been like, I'll go use the bathroom after I send one more email after I mean, we ignore our own biology in service of our work to our detriment. So we're just talking about baking back in little choices that allow us to shift the big one that I'll share that no one will like, but it's true. I know when I worked in the nonprofit sector and in the social work world, no one taught me that I needed to take grief like a medicine, like a daily dose of grief was the only way I was going to survive the witnessing that I was asking my system to do on the daily, but we're not taught how to grieve as a culture generally. And so it's like, well, what, what do I have to grieve? No one like right now, no one's dead, but grief is not just about someone you love died. There's, I am hopeless. I can't help. This is a situation beyond my control. There's not enough time or money to help this person that I care about. We need to be able to microdose grief throughout our day, particularly if you're working in the nonprofit world. Yeah. Wow. I feel like I, that's really powerful. And I think, you know, many of the missions of, of, you know, the nonprofits that we work with are, they're hard. You know, the problems are big, they're complicated. We're working with humans, animals, and environment that we can't fix. And um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, for that idea and that permission. And I have actually two questions and maybe they're related and maybe they're not. And one is, you know, just an example of what, you know, what does it mean to microdose grief? And um, the second though, which is another sort of somatic question, and I'm circling back to you, sharing, you know, you didn't pay attention and you didn't pay attention and then things went, you know, very wrong. 
I'm I'm really learning how out of touch many of us get with our bodies. And I would love if you, you know, got to like, as you get to do, look back with hindsight, like, what do you wish you had paid attention to when your body started screaming or first started whispering and then started tapping? And, you know, what were some of those things? So I know that's two completely different questions. But, yeah, which one do you want me to hit first? Um, maybe the second one first. The, the so. Yeah. My my personal framework is I I don't there's a 12 step saying that I subscribe to, which is eventually you get to a point in recovery where you neither regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. So I don't go back and wish I had done things different. I'm not proud of my choices and I would not want to replay one second of it. But um, I don't sit in. I I wish I would have. It's like, great. All of its feedback I learned. But I was ignoring relationship cues. There were really toxic things happening in my relationships um, that were not, were very clearly, like very few things can be categorized as good or bad in this nuanced world. The things that were happening in my home were objectively bad, but I kept myself busy at work so I didn't have to deal with it. I was living with an active addiction and domestic violence. And there was a lot of stuff going on, but I worked in a nonprofit world where I could stay occupied 20 hours a day and just ignore it and just put on my, I'm going to go and be useful and not pay attention to what's happening. And then I stopped eating and then I started doing drugs. And as that happens to do, eventually you run out of gas and you crash, which I did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I'm thinking there's also this, you know, back pain and yeah, that's um, it. those kinds of like our <laughs> bodies can, can speak to us. And thank you for saying that about regret. I really, I hear that. And it's just, you know, maybe we want others maybe to hear, you know, to hear the planet talking to them before we ourselves got to hear it, <laughs> but they're on their own. They're on their own journeys. Yeah. And then maybe, um, my microdosing grief, T- tell us what you mean by that. And those, they seem like separate threads, but microdosing grief does require a somatic awareness, awareness of your body. So if you're trying to catch little red flags before they become crises in your own system, microdosing grief is a mindfulness practice that will help you to do that. And what does that look like? We don't have time to feel the full weight of what's happening in the world. You wouldn't get anything done, but can you take 30 seconds, four minutes or whatever to let yourself sit somewhere quiet and feel the weight of the burden to cry if you have to, to let yourself pound the steering wheel, car analogy, and scream if you have to. But big giant waves of emotions don't stay in our systems that long if we're present with them. They have a maximum really of 60 to 90 seconds before they abate and they'll calm down. But give yourself 30 seconds to acknowledge the world is not going to get fixed by you, no matter how much you burn yourself out and you get to grieve that reality, you know, failure to grieve a reality keeps us from being as useful and as functional as we want to be within it. And so it's holding the duality of you have to grieve what you can't do while simultaneously grabbing what you can and knowing those don't cancel each other out. Mm, Yeah. You know, it reminds me like, you know, uh, somebody recently, I was in a workshop and they said like they would read the stories, you know, of success that, that related to their charity. And it was a children's charity. So they were very moving and powerful. And what you're saying is the flip side, because there are, you know, if if you work in a, this was a medical related children's charity, there are going to be children who cannot be helped. Right. And so I think sometimes we 
in our society, it's like, well, I have to think about who we helped and like what went well in the triumphs. And it's like, we don't like to let ourselves think about and grieve what couldn't be because no charity can do everything, you know? Um, exactly. And we don't have to wallow in it. We don't have to live there. But that's why I say microdose the grief. If we don't acknowledge the reality of that, then you can only outrun it for so long before it's going to create very real social, psychological, physical consequences in your system and impede your ability to show up. So that's why I like the microdose. Set a timer for two minutes and be miserable. Think every dark thought. Go to all those places that you're going anyway. We're just making mm -hmm. them contained, boundaried, and present and that that helps yeah 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 like feel actually feel it yeah i think that's so true because yeah like and <laughs> to be like well i'll just ignore it it's like your body is not ignoring it <laughs> your body knows <laughs> you know um sometimes in our just even putting your hands over your heart you know and just oh, that was hard right just yes yes that was hard and letting, letting that be true. Right. And it's a, it's a counter to that relentless cheer that has us, right. Like not, yeah. <laughs> that us not um, just, it's a step over, right. It's a step over when we don't. It's also neurologically a sound intervention. If you try to, wow, that was great. That was fine. Everything is fine. The We're dissonance okay. between that, the toxic positivity thing, you're going to create a stress response in your body because your body wants to tell you something and you're not listening. And again, that amps up your stress hormone response. So saying, wow, that was hard is a way to pump the brakes so that you can, and again, that's a great intervention for kids too. If a kid experienced something hard, sh sh everything is fine as was a very old way of doing it. Now it's, oh my gosh, that was so scary. Oh my God, that was so hard. Yeah. Like it was, right. so that yeah. thing pumps the brakes. Yeah. 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 There's nothing worse than like, you know, that something was hard and somebody's not letting you Right. about it <laughs> we're okay, we're okay. yeah let's not dwell let's not write that sort That's, of oh, yeah. yeah everything's okay i know you yes. talk a lot about anxiety which is a topic that you know we could have six more podcasts about but what what's your kind of takeaway as you've put together some of the neuroscience on anxiety just broadly speaking, um, anxiety is the check engine light of the mind's dashboard. It's a problem. It's not the problem. Just like when your check engine light comes on, it's annoying, but it's not the problem. It's a signal pointing towards a problem. Anxiety is the anxiety can have very real physiological consequences. If it left unchecked, yes, it can be debilitating, but the function of anxiety is self-protective. It does not attack us. It feels like an attack because we don't know what's going on. I didn't know I had an amygdala. I didn't know I had a stress hormone called cortisol until I learned it. And so the language that we use about fighting our brain and fearing our mind and these phenomena that attack us, it's like your, your brain is on your side. It wants to help keep you alive, not happy. It wants to help keep you alive. So let's start with the function of anxiety is first self-protective before we get into, okay, great. What do we do about it? Well, that's when you take your car to the shop and we got to figure out what the signal is pointing to. And then we come up with a plan. Yeah. That's a powerful reframe, right? Because yeah, again, it's the toxic positivity. It's like, we want to sort of like, I don't want that, or I want to move past it. And it's just like the simplicity of just saying, 
like this is trying to tell me something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the physical sensation of anxiety is it's difficult, Awful. right? It's Awful. very yeah, yeah, one of the hardest energies to just let be. Yeah. I think we we fight it just like but it's like putting your hand over the check engine light. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> it's can. not gonna go well. <laughs> I used to put tape over it when I had a car <laughs> falling apart. I'm like, I know, I don't want it, like I'm just gonna run this car into the grounds, but the light's useful. Yeah, it's it's trying to tell you something. <laughs> we do love to um, leave our audience with, I mean, there have been many things that we've talked about for them to consider, but is there a specific offering that you'd like to leave our listeners with something they can try based on our conversation? Yes, thank you. It's my favorite tool and it works with every range on the stuck spectrum from I don't want to go to bed because I'm procrastinating to I have clinical depression and a drug addiction. And this tool is called the micro yes. And again, you microdose grief. We want to make things as small as possible. A micro yes is smaller than a small step. It's smaller than a baby step. A micro yes is the smallest thing that you can do right now. Like not after you sober up, not after you get the gear or next Tuesday or after you're done, quote, being bad or whatever your thing is. A micro yes is a way to build capacity right now. It's a way to release the dopamine that you're going to need to do the bigger things. So a micro yes for going to the gym is not take a walk. A micro yes is take your sneakers out of the closet and put them by the door. And that's all you do today. And then tomorrow you put the left one on and go back to the couch. And the next day you put the right one on. And people say, how am I supposed to get anything done if I am doing these micro yeses? Well, one, you're going to get where you want to go a lot faster if you take steps that are sustainable. Micro yeses are sustainable because you can do them right now without your nervous system going haywire. And the pace that you start at is not the pace that you stay at. Micro yeses help you build momentum so then you can do the bigger lifts that you're asking of yourself. So mm. yay, micro yeses. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, because it's sort of, it's funny how sometimes as humans, we're like, but that's going to take forever. It's like, well, it's going to take less time than doing nothing, which is what is currently happening. <laughs> exactly. Like they work. They do work. And you don't have faith in yourself. You just need to know this is how the brain brains. The brain brains best with micro yeses versus big steps. Yes. And there's that saying about eating an elephant, which is gross. Like nobody yeah. wants an elephant, but just the idea of the bigness of it, you know, one bite at a time, one yeah. bite at a time. And that's, that's what I think. Yeah. So uh, before we let you go, Britt, where can people find you? Yes. Thank you. This is such a fun conversation. Um, you can buy the book, The Science of Stuck, anywhere you buy books. Um, my website is scienceofstuck.com and I'm on all the socials. Find me on Instagram, find me on LinkedIn. I don't have other people doing all my stuff. I write everything. I answer all the comments and messages myself. So um, hope to meet you all out in the internet world at some point. Great. Great. And thank you so much, Britt Frank, for all of your great takes on stuckness. Thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by Fundraising Leadership. We provide unique coaching and training programs to grow nonprofit leaders. Please subscribe. If you haven't already, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, you can help us continue to bring thoughtful content with a one-time contribution. This supports our production costs and keeps the show ad-free. Please contribute today using the link in the show notes, and you will receive one or more of our highly acclaimed online courses. Now go put it into practice. Yeah.